What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 111 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host who will be joining me shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. First things first, Mike and I got to get all caught up. The man had LASIK eye surgery. I want to find out how it went. We'll talk about my trip to Nashville and my minor video shoot, hanging out at the Nelson Drum Co., and hanging out with Chester Thompson. After that, we'll talk about some education. We'll talk about how to utilize tension and release in your grooves, fills, and your solos. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Antonio Sanchez. In the gear review section, Mike will be checking out the Canopus NV60M5 5x14 Maple Snare Drum. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Boom. Boom, boom. What is this? What episode is this? We are at 111. One one one. one, one, Look one. At us go. Hundred and one plus ten <laughs> episodes. <laughs> what? <laughs> Hundred and one plus ten. Oh, that is. Uh, we are eleventy one years old. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, Throwing it back to the Hobbit. How are you, pal? I'm good. I got my eyes fixed. So we can. You want me? Yeah. <laughs> you want so, me to give you so the, uh, the quick rundown of how it? How I want to know. Am I getting my eyes fixed? Um. Wow. Well, I mean, the question would be, how squeamish are you with people messing with your eyes? Well, none, zero. Yeah. Doesn't well, then, and for you, I think it would be a no-brainer. Absolutely. Oh, I'm, really? I'm one week out from surgery, and I'm seeing better than 2020. I'm seeing 2015 currently, and it's wow. only going to get better and more clear over the next few weeks. And can you, I mean, when you wake up in the morning, is it just weird to not have to put on glasses or contacts? You're it's just like, oh, totally just weird. See. Every day I wake up thinking, crap, I slept in my contacts again. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, of course. these are just my eyeballs. <laughs> this is how it works now. <laughs> wow. So how long was the process overall from like you getting in there in the morning till you left? 10 minutes of surgery of actual like in the operating room and it's not okay. really an operating room it's like going to a dentist's office and they sure. they have these you know this the separate room but it all had glass walls so you could watch other people get the surgery done while you're waiting I, I saw five people get it done in an hour it was wow. it was almost like terminator like androids they would go in one side they go through the first machine then go to the second machine they'd put some sunglasses on and then come out the door and then another person would it was it was weird it was kind of like a like a sci-fi factory for wow robot that's making. awesome man yeah so oh man what they do at least what this surgeon did he takes you into like the holding room where they put the numbing drops in your eyes and he asks okay. you if you have any questions and they put the hair thing on like the right. hair hat then you go over to a station where he just looks at your eyes, make sure everything is healthy and there's no major okay. problems. And then he walks you over to the first laser, and that's the one that like cuts the flap off your cornea a little bit, like it uh-huh. it creates the flap, which is what skis most people out. But right, it really I didn't feel it. They they put this okay. suction cup on your eyeball that kind of holds it so you can't move it. That is a little okay. weird feeling, but I would assume it didn't hurt, but not painful. Not okay. painful, just weird. And then. The sensation of going essentially blind in one eye as they do the make the flap was weird. Like I had a my friend Nate asked me, he's like, "What is it? What is it like to lose your vision? Does it just go black?" And I was like, "No, it doesn't go black. It just it just stops. It just you just cease being able to see. It's hard to describe. It's not like wow. Okay. It's not like closing your eyes where everything's black. It just kind of fades and then there's nothing there. Okay, but that's only like ten seconds. Okay." So oh, then, you know, after well, each eye, so maybe 30 seconds to do the the flaps. 
and that's weird because it feels like you you're underwater or you have like a plastic sheet in front of your eyes because there's a flap on your cornea so nothing's clear Ooh. it's all kind of strange okay okay, okay. <laughs> again you okay. can't feel it there's no feeling sure <laughs> then they walk over to the actual laser and then that's like some super like 21st century stuff the laser actually tracks your eyes so you can look around and it, it'll move with you like, oh wow you can't screw up essentially so you just stare at this green light and it just zaps your eyeball and fixes it and you smell a little bit like burnt hair as they're kind of <laughs> burning uh-huh. your uh-huh. Sure, yeah. <laughs> this is great. But again, you don't Sign. really feel it. And then okay, the, okay. the surgeon uses like a little mini squeegee to put your, your cornea flat back on. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, sign me up. I'm ready to go. <laughs> then you just go over Ooh. and you go back over to the exam little station. He looks at your eyes, gives you these uh, Terminator glasses, and you're out the door. So 10 minutes, I was... I was seeing 2020 essentially. Wow. And then they tell you to go straight home and go to bed because those three hours, once the numbing drops wear off between, you know, after surgery and the next three or four hours, your eyes are on fire. Like, oh, really? Really, really burns. Okay. So they give you like a Tylenol PM and you just go to go to bed, take a nap. So I slept for like oh. kind of like a lucid sleep for like three hours. I'd wake up every 45 minutes, I'm like, yeah, my eyes still hurt. I can't really open them. And then. I just fall back asleep. Okay, but then three hours later, I could I could essentially function normally. Man, yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I played I'll a, be doing I played that. a gig the next night. Really? Yeah, it was. And night vision. I mean, it's all good. Well, night vision is kind of like for me when I wear my glasses. There's like a little bit of a halo around stuff. It's, sure. Okay. So that'll that'll linger for a little while, but they said it'll go away. Oh, it does. Okay, but cool. I didn't have any issue. Like it was, it didn't keep me from driving. It was just a little bit of like halos Glare. around the lights and stuff. But sure, yeah, no, it's it's weird. I mean, there was I had a weird kind of like um, sense of like melancholy that I could never see the world in my Monet blurried perspective ever again. It was like wow. <laughs> I'll never see the blurry world ever again. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Which oh man, yeah. I'm so excited about that. Yeah, I mean, I would I would recommend it if you can if you can afford it. And and I had pretty bad vision; like I couldn't even see the big E on the the vision test thing. Okay, like it was pretty bad. Like, I I couldn't function without glasses or contacts. So to go in today for my one week, and I'm seeing 2015, and never have to put on a pair of glasses. I even have like a box of contacts left. I'm like, wow, I don't want to throw them away, but why would They're I keep so them? Expensive, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, try to walk around outside, find some homeless people that maybe it's like, hey, man, yeah. do we have the same prescription? <laughs> I gave my dad because my glasses so he can use the frames. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah, man, those frames are expensive. I just got my first pair of glasses. The oh, frames yeah. are so expensive, I cheaped out on the lenses. They were like, do you want the anti-glare? I'm like, no, no, just, just – I'm never going to wear these dang things. Just This is just for flying. And then uh, I've worn them quite a bit, actually. Uh, I get kind of used to them. It's, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm definitely going to do the surgery. So that's awesome, man. Well, congratulations. Yeah, it was neat. I mean, it's it definitely a, an experience to say the least. Sure, it's just weird. Everyone said I, it's the only way I can describe it. It's just weird. Like I wouldn't do it yeah. again tomorrow just for fun. But sure, it wasn't like I was getting a tooth pulled or something that would be excruciating. It was gotcha. Know, it was whatever. You didn't really notice it. Well, and then how was your gig? The gig was cool. So I I played with this guy who I'd never heard of, and apparently. 
uh, I was ignorant to the fact that he's written a lot of hit songs in, in country radio, I guess going back 15 or so years. His name is Phil, okay. Phil Vassar. He was in he was in Virginia to play a, a benefit show, so it was kind of like a not a huge deal. It was at a country club, and it was you know just a benefit for one of their members. So he didn't bring his band. He just flew in and did the gig and used us as his backing band. So we were okay. we were the opening band. So we had like five ten minutes of rehearsal before the doors opened to just wow go through what songs we were going to play and okay. So it was kind of it was kind of crazy. It was kind of like you know. We had no idea exactly what to expect. I had charts of everything, but it was great. And I, it was one of those experiences where I'm like, okay, this is what it's like to play with someone who's one, uh, his sole purpose on earth is to make music. It just, he right. was just exuding charisma and energy, and it was completely honest. And he was able to get everyone up dancing, you know, and it was a country wow. club. People were usually a little more chilled out and relaxed, but. Sure, he got him all kind of going rowdy. It was it was nice. It was cool. It was definitely cool. That's awesome. So it was and a good did you time. get a good vibe from him enjoying your playing? Oh yeah, yeah. He was. I mean, he's he's super chill. He was just glad that we were there and we knew the songs and he didn't have to worry about it. You know, he he like yeah. threw some audibles on stage. Like you guys know, Brown Eyed Girl. Let's do that. And he just started it. So we <laughs> we just played Brown Eyed Girl. Doesn't like, even wait for a response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was That's fun. So cool. It was it was nice. It was a. It was a good gig, and that was the f- two nights, one two nights after the surgery. So I, I was like putting drops of my eyes in between songs and stuff. <laughs> sure. Do they get in in the first few days? Do, you, do your eyes get dry fast? But yeah, you got to put like these. Uh, I don't know what they are. They got a little bit of oil Just in them. Little every wedding every drops. hour. Yeah, it's not like normal saline. It's a little bit different. It's okay. like preservative free or something, but. Yeah, like every hour they kind of get scratchy, so it feels kind of like you're wearing your contacts too long, gotcha. like all day long. That's what it feels like for the gotcha. first four or five days. But yeah, it was a good gig. It was fun. It was it was nice good, to, to. I mean, I played with some great bands and some great musicians, but there's always that next level when you're like, okay, that guy's got something special, and sure. I was just there to ride the wave for that evening. It was cool. <laughs> That's really cool, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you had fun. What what kids you take out? Uh, that was the kit that's down there. It's a GMS maple kit. Oh, um, and I took Hello. my uh, GMS solid birch snare. That yeah, was buddy. The drum. So yeah, it was cool. Symbols, symbols. Um, Istanbul Mimits. Um, so kind of thin, dark, but not not yeah. super dry. They still have some. Probably sustain. perfect for that room since you kind of yeah. It was, like it was explode. It was a ballroom, so it was like a big, yeah. loud sort of like like Pasic kind of a room where yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, as soon as, as, soon as I hit the snare echoey. drum, I was like, "Ooh, it's gonna be one of these rooms." Like you could hear the slap <laughs> yeah. back. Like it was crazy slap back off the wall and stuff. Oh man, that's always so disorienting. I mean, if you play quiet enough, it's fine. And once people get in there, it's fine. But in the beginning, it can be yeah. a little, <laughs> yeah, like wow, so weird on the timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, how was your trip? Were you sick the whole time? It was, yeah, it it was bad. The trip was probably amazing. It was probably maybe one of my favorite three-day trips I've ever had in my life. Um, I just wish I could have been fully healthy to um, enjoy it a little bit more. Mm. But, um, you know, it it all worked out. So I got there, uh, I think, uh, flew out Thursday night, got there late Thursday night. And uh, my rep, Chris Brewer, and I just went and had some nice... 
food and then uh, went to bed and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna wake up tomorrow. I'm gonna be awesome. And then uh, through the whole night of sleeping, it's just kind of like the coughing and sniffling. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to wake up and feel amazing. Mm. This is actually taking hold of my life now. (laughs) So in the morning, I did everything I could. But here's where things went off the rails. I got the colors mixed up of Tylenol, or not Tylenol, of Theraflu PM and Theraflu AM, or daytime and nighttime. And I took the blue when I should (laughs) have taken the red. And so like... As we're driving over to the studio, I'm feeling a little hoozy. And I was like, wait. <laughs> That's terrible. No, blue. And I'm like, blue is daytime. No, why would blue be daytime? Of course red is daytime and blue is nighttime. I'm like, why did I take the blue pills? So, yeah. So then to counteract that, luckily I had a five-hour energy drink in my bag. Oh, man. So I hammered that. And then, like, for the entire day, those two substances in my body were fighting for control. No doubt. And I was like, "That's how people so die, tired. dude." But I'm so peppy. <laughs> I'm so tired. But I'm so peppy. Uh, Isn't that what killed Hendrix? This, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very similar. <laughs> yeah, Theraflu PM and uh, Five Hour Energy <laughs> Drink is very similar. It's taking uppers and downers. But uh, and then yeah, I got to the uh, the studio is called I think it's called the Tracking Room um, or is that right? Um, we're in the back room. Yeah, they had three studios there. Um, inside this one massive studio and we were in kind of the I guess what you would consider to be the modern room so they had like kind of a vintage room a modern room and so we were in the high tech room Mm. and it was just a gorgeous studio the uh, camera crew was absolutely amazing same people I've worked with last time I was there in Nashville they had the same rental kit for me a nice black um, piano black USA custom in all my sizes I brought my own snare with me just so I had a little comfort of home and then Meinl provided all the symbols, and so it was all new symbol, brand new symbols straight out of the bags. Mm. And so it it was awesome. The room sounded great, and then we recorded all three songs, tracked all three songs, and that's one of those situations where I had to explain to the producer because what was really cool is the producer was full blown Nashville producer, like oh, yeah. only works with Shannon Forrest and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And he's like. He's like, yeah, man, I don't know what's going on with that rack tom because it don't sound nothing like that floor tom. And I was like, I know. I know that my snare and rack are kind of jazz, and then my floor tom is like rock. And he's like, yeah, those two, when you do back and forth, that doesn't work. And I was like, I know this, (laughs) sir. So I had to be like, I was like, okay, have you listened to the music yet? And he's like, just the mono tracks you sent me. And I was like, okay, hold on. <laughs> he was he was actually really nice. He was incredibly nice, but he definitely only deals with top-level pros every day. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm like, look, I know that the dynamics from the A section to the B section are a little out of whack, and I start hitting really hard in the B section, but we are recording audio to support the video. We're not recording video to support the audio, so I have to look a certain way during this part and if the dynamics get a little out of whack, we're going to have to sacrifice the sound for the visual. This this is a video production, and audio is supporting that. And he was like, you could just see him be like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> okay? You know, and I was like, all right. Starting off good. And then I said, look, my rack tom, that whole left side of my kit, including my rack tom, that's all a soundscape of percussion to me. And then I have one tom on my drum set, which is my floor tom. So if I'm doing a fill... 
it's going to have the floor tom in it. But my rack tom is used more like a jazz drummer for this specific project. So, anyways, it was it was a little weird at first when we were getting tones, you know, because he's like, I mean, tom one, tom two, and he's like, what the hell? Come in here, come in the control room. So, by the way, that's the best Nashville accent I can give you. So, anyway, so I, so once we once I played through one of the tracks, he's like, I, I got to say that sounds pretty good. That, that's I like it, you know. And the engineer's like, I've never heard anybody tune their drums like that, but that sounds great. And I was like, cool. Thank you, guys. And then we were on like Easy Street. The one thing I will say about the producer that I loved was he is working in this situation. He's working for Minel, not for me. So, and I've never met him before. He was extremely, and I'm kind of making a, a light out of it, but he was extremely honest about my playing as he would if he was tracking an album with, you know, the biggest country drummer in the world. And so I really appreciated that type of candor where he just let me know like, okay, here's what's jumping out to me as a, as a, you know, just a listener. Mm -hmm. This is, this is jumping out to me, this section right here. And, and he was never talking really about the playing. Like as far as was I too busy or too simple? It was just kind of like, this isn't sitting. This is jumping out dynamically. Mm. I can obviously fix it in the mix, but I'd rather not. And it was it was really cool to get because, dude, I'm you know, both you and I on our day jobs, we're in a bubble. We record ourselves, right. we track ourselves, we mix ourselves. So to get that kind of feedback was amazing. So I did that, um, did all three songs. Then and the one thing that's weird about it is. Imagine tracking, but having five or six cameras flying around your head while you're tracking, and you can never make eye contact with the lens. You always have to look a certain, like you're engaged. You can't ever close your eyes like you're really concentrating to lock with the click. So it, it's kind of a different situation. So we did all of that. Then we recorded five lessons for Minel's uh, social media channels, so speaking to the camera. Then an hour podcast. And then we did a symbol walkthrough interview, like what symbols I'm playing and why. Then we did another video on why am I playing a two-ride setup in Man on the Moon. Um, when I have a signature ride, why am I also playing a second ride? And then, uh, oh, and then we did all three songs again live on Instagram and Facebook. So That's pretty much I was tough. Yeah, so I was tracking and speaking from, I'd say we started about, we were done setting up and started tracking about 10 a.m. And then we finished at 6 p.m. with no, we had a tiny little lunch break. But so by that time, <clears throat> my voice was gone. I literally couldn't speak anymore. And then, uh, so I had Chris just take me straight to the hotel. I was like, I, I just have to literally lay down until morning. <laughs> then in the morning I went to uh, the Nelson Drum Company. And this is the coolest part, dude. So being there was awesome because it's Bryson's new retail spot that he's sharing with another owner. Um, and getting to play on, you know, old Radio Kings. The first, mm. right when I walked in, it was a... 24 by 12 that had been cut down from a 24 by 18 or something oh, cool. or 16 and so i mean just right away i was like okay we're in vibe land and yeah. i played on old slinger lens i played on old ludwigs i even told him i was like i know that that kit in the corner is getting no love get that kent down here right now <laughs> and i'm playing and it might have been the best sounding bass drum. The toms definitely were of a $500 drum set, but yeah. the bass drum was killing. So anyways, had an amazing time doing that. But do you know the website drummaker.com? No. no. Okay, so that's where I've always gone to get every, like if you need to get your, you're going to try out some new lugs on your shell, you go to drummaker.com. If you want to buy single flanged hoops, that's like the place to go. I've used drummaker.com for like, 
since the since websites started. Well, what was awesome is so he's the one that supplies all these other companies with their little parts. Like, oh, you want twenty throw offs? I'll get them for you. You want a hundred lugs of this uh, tube lugs? I'll get them for you. So he's kind of the supplier of the, a lot of parts for custom drum companies that aren't making their own stuff. Um, so, anyways, that's who's sharing this retail space with Bryson, uh-huh. and he's had his space for a long time. And so now, when you walk in, there's all this brand new gear to the right of the shop, brand new shells, brand new lugs, everything that you could ever need for your modern drum set. And to the left of the shop is all of Bryson's vintage gear. It's a really cool place. That's neat. Um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. So what was cool is I walked in, and right when I walked in, there was this baby blue aluminum snare drum <laughs> with single flange tubes and claws, <laughs> and I just said, what is that? And he's like, and, and so I have, the only aluminum snare drum I have is my Gretsch USA, which is a solid CNC'd aluminum yeah, shell, different. right? Yeah, very it's not i mean not even relative to like an acrylite or any world yeah. shell and i picked it up and it was feather light and he's like oh you can give it a shot and as soon as i hit it once i just was like so do you take cards here or how do i, how do I have this in my collection awesome. and it was totally affordable it was 425 nice and it was gorgeous i don't know how he anodized these things because they're not anodized and they're not painted but they are definitely stained somehow um, so yeah, it's this baby blue aluminum drum. I think it actually shows up today cause I didn't have enough room to take it home with me. Um, so yes, uh, swipe the card and I was like, we're good to go. And, uh, <laughs> so that was awesome. And then at night I went out and had a little quick dinner and, uh, with Chester Thompson and then watched him play a jazz gig. Oh, that's right. And, uh, Dang, yeah, man. it was really cool. So overall it was a fantastic, fantastic weekend in Nashville. Um, was just on point, man. Is downtown Nashville is out of control. It's like Mardi Gras every night there. It's so yeah, much fun. I, I so. kind of love it. I know a lot of musicians try to avoid the Broadway scene, but I kind of love it. I think just wandering. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't need to live there, but I love visiting it for sure. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, I thought it was awesome. So, so, anyways, that was my weekend. You had life changing eye surgery, and I got an <laughs> aluminum snare drum. I think we are on par with each other. <laughs> All right, let's talk a little bit of education, a little bit of drumming, guys and girls, talking about tension and release. And that is definitely an advanced concept. You know, in the beginning, when you start playing the drums, you're just trying to figure out where each limb goes in what part. You're trying to work on your timing, your subdivisions, your patterns, um, when to do a fill. Like, do you do your fills in the right place? Heck, just landing my fills on the one, you know, landing my trick, as I would call it, Mm. that was a big enough problem. And then I think, I don't think as a drummer I started working on tension and release until I finally heard it. Once I heard other drummers doing it, and I was like, oh, well, I wasn't listening to this as a drummer. I was listening to this as just a human being that enjoys music. But what the drummer just did made me feel something. It caused me to feel tense, like something's wrong here. And then they released that tension, maybe with a crash a little bit later than I was expecting. It can show up in so many different ways. So using tension and release in your playing is a very advanced concept, but it's something I think everyone can work on, even all the way down to the beginner level, as long as you understand that what you're playing can change the way people feel as they're listening to you play jump in i'm sorry i sound like you dropped out there's, for a second it like broke no, up there's no for a question second. there i just was like okay i think i've really put a stamp on this i was thing. like oh Here's where no. dawson's gonna jump in i thought i thought skype froze up on us for a second uh, how about this so tension and release can really change the way people feel about your playing hey mike dawson your thoughts 
That was so weird. You didn't move, and I thought for sure that Sky had been frozen. <laughs> Sorry, next time I want you to talk, I'll just do this with my head. I'll just move around and bunch. I'll be like, everything's cool. Well, just I mean, start talking. I think that'd be a good example of tension, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we released it with some laughter. Exactly. Silence. Just do that with some your drumming. Silence. Yeah, I think uh, I've been... Well, I've been trying to figure out how to play a drum solo, like, for real, and not just playing a bunch of licks and crap on the drums that I've I've always relied on in the past. And and what I'm doing now is trying to figure out, well, what... What things have I taught myself how to play that I had no idea what their purpose was? And then let me try to figure out what's going to be the musical application of them. Like six-stroke rolls, they're pretty smooth. There's not a lot of tension. But what happens if you start them on different parts of the beat instead of it just being like a downbeat kind of a sounding roll? Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, how can I resolve it so it's not on the one? Uh, So those are little things I'm thinking of. Like, how can I make these things more musically effective? But... Jumping way back to when you're talking about the beginner level, I think the way that we construct our beats can have tension and release built into them. Um, so yeah. I listen to a lot of like I think hip hop producers are great at that. Where yeah, I think when you have multi bar phrases of a yeah, groove, exactly. that happens. Yeah, you can like repeat the same pattern three times, and in the fourth bar, there's some kind of a release that that you know makes a statement that okay, now we're starting over again. Give you a chance to mm-hmm. breathe, uh, which also helps the vocalist in their storytelling because exactly. then they can start singing four bar phrases as well yeah and I think you hear that in uh, actually hear, you hear it in a lot of like the great studio drummers who they, they just write parts that are more than just one measure there's something that's that's happening to make it you know the repeated stuff for me is the tension and then the variance is the release of the phrase yeah so I think even a beginner can think that way yeah, I mean, a, a nice little open hi-hat on the end of four, of the fourth bar. That's the, the release, right. you know? It's like, okay. So I always call it the four-bar turnaround because every fourth bar, when my students are playing a song that they're not familiar with, I just ask their ears to perk up. And, and just it's like, for, for this whole fourth bar, just listen. Is anything happening? Do you need to do anything? Or if, you know, if I know that Sting is still telling a story, I'm not going to be like, well, this is a good place for a fill. Yeah, it's right. Like, eh. You know, I can tell that our phrase has come to an end, but but the singer is still telling their story. So I'm just gonna you know open the high little buckets uh, and yeah. just reset the stage, or you know? just one bass drum note placed a little bit differently. Exactly, it's like a subtle thing that I you know, especially when I am asked to do a lot more of this modern country stuff. The beats are essentially the same beat over and over again, but it's. Mm-hmm. It's crafty the way these guys create their parts sometimes. It might be a two-bar phrase where there's an extra eighth note in the second bar that you might not actually pick up on until you try to learn the song. You right. think you actually hear, or it might be a four-bar pattern, and, and you hear it, but maybe the first listen just is kind of a more random part. They're just adding eighth notes, but then you, listen, you really dig in. You're like, oh, it's actually a four-bar repeated phrase that just, right. it's a slow tempo, so you don't really hear that it's a, a four-bar phrase or something like that. So I think that's right. a good way to think about adding tension into your grooves uh, and the other idea would be to have it be well, I guess it would be more of a fill thing for me would be the simplest way would be make it faster like your fill would go from simple to fast and like 8th right. note 16th 16th note triplets so that would be a, a tension creator um, or mixing up subdivisions that are kind of against the, the grain I think is another good one yeah. triplets especially when you're if they're a, against the grain of the song itself yeah you know? exactly I mean, Right when you hear a song, you know, okay, this is either triplet-based or 16th note-based. I always am thinking, does it swing or is it straight? Yeah. 
And if I know the whole song is, but it's all sixteenths, then I know how much tension. Yeah, yeah. You know, then crash on the two, and it's just like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, like you said, mixing subdivisions, great way to achieve the tension, and then moving that crash to somewhere that's a little less predictable than the one is a great a great way to create a little extra tension. Because when you leave out the crash on the one, everyone holds their breath, and when you hit it on the two, they exhale. Yeah, and you know, I love like a flat doom shaka doom. Yeah. And everybody's like, oh, man. And, and then you think like, wow, everyone here, all the drummers are clapping because I didn't play a note. Yeah. It's not that yeah. they thought like the fill was cool. They're like, oh, that thing where you didn't do anything. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, that's yeah. the other. I think it's another device is adding rests and spots rests, where you yeah. would normally play a note. Like even just dropping out the snare drum on beat four. If you're playing just oh, a regular absolutely. groove, everything yeah. else stays the same. But you just kind of like hit the mute button on the snare for a, for a beat. Yeah, crashing on the snare, you know, flat, doom, skeka, doom, skat, cat. Yeah. That's a great way. Another thing that we should definitely discuss is how you create tension release going into a chorus versus coming out of a chorus. You know, I have so many students and campers that come in and their fills are the same no matter where they're going. And I'm like, hey, I need you to bring us down, man. We're going into a quiet verse and you did your same Pat Boone, Debbie Boone fill. Or you did like a you know floor tom snare crescendo. Doom, 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 doom. I'm like, go into a verse, man. Why are you why are you hyping me up to bring it down? And then and then they crash on a twenty inch crash. And I'm like, you know, just so you know, Phil's there's no rule that says you have to hit a round shiny symbol after every fill. You yeah. know, I, I really make sure that if I'm gonna crash, it's doing something musically. And cause I do see the crash as the biggest release. It's like, okay. Now we've all decided and we've all agreed that's the downbeat or that's, you know, we've released the tension. Yeah. Um, so and then as far as it relates to solos, you know, that's a that's something where you're probably discovering right now. But it's very tricky to be playing such complicated stuff and still have a producer's mindset yeah. and say, you know what? I've been pretty busy for a while. Let's release this. This is a lot of tension that I'm creating because people. You know, this stuff is flying by most of the audience's head. Let me give them flat a doom boom and then and then everyone in the audience is like, okay, for the next twenty seconds, I know what's happening. Mm. I, I can play this stuff. And then you start building up, you know, you get a couple extra notes, or like in the stuff we're gonna discuss with Antonio Sanchez, you get a few implied metric modulations to make people go. Okay, I trust that drummer. I know that he knows what he's doing, but I don't know what just happened. Yeah. I got a little queasy trying to feel it, you know. Um, So, yeah, I think that tension and release is definitely something that is a mark of a a great drummer. I think Vinny Caliuto is probably definitely somebody that I saw doing it in a way where I was like, okay, that's not just fills for fills' sake, and it's not just chops for chops' sake. Exactly. Steve Gadd. Really creating an emotion. Steve Gadd, Matt Chamberlain. The guys who I think... I think it comes down to your phrasing rather than what you're actually playing, and that's that's mm-hmm. the tricky part because you know a, a, a drum solo that's just full of square four bar phrases, but they're playing this said drummer is playing the most amazing techniques ever is for me it, it falls flat. Whereas someone who just knows how to manipulate basic rhythms and basic patterns and yeah. and stretch the phrasing in ways that's unpredictable, but you can still follow along. I think Gad's probably the, the master of that of, of 
mm-hmm. being able to kind of push you just far enough to where you can follow. He's not just blazing 30-second notes and doing all kinds right. of crossovers and, and physical feats on the drums. So I think that's – it's harder to teach and it's harder to learn phrasing, but I think that's the key is is to study musical phrasing, musical shape. and Being a fan of it really helps. I mean, when if you – you know, thinking of not pushing it maybe quite as far on the drum level, but definitely pushing it as far, if not farther, on the music level. When you listen to Keltner play, you just hear someone that is begging to know more about the song so that he can convey emotion into that song and help the singer-songwriter out and say, okay, this is how you want people to feel right now through what you've written. Let me support that instead of cover it up or sabotage it. You know, what if they want this tension release and you just don't recognize that? (laughs) Um, They've created it in their music and then your drum part actually sabotages it. And I think Keltner is one of those ones where it's like, oh, man, I mean, when I hear it happen, I just think that's I remember with uh, Phil Collins playing a lot in his especially in his ballad stuff. And then with Keltner, both those guys, I always thought. I could play it. I just never would have thought to play it. Yeah, that's the, and that always drove me art. nuts. Yeah, the thing with with Keltner and the great singer songwriter drummers for me is they they can they're not superimposing any kind of drummer stuff on these songs. They're literally letting right. the song take their their arrangement where it needs to go, or adding just enough tweaks to, to thrust the arrangement somewhere else. Like I've I know I've ruined a lot of singer songwriter songs by just. <laughs> You know, they give me the track, and it's kind of cool. So I just play a beat over it, and it's like, oh god, I just, I just turned a song that had subtle, had subtlety to it. I just turned into a boring song. It just sounds like a boring song because I'm playing fills going into the chorus, and I'm playing eighth right. notes on the hi hat in the verse, and very predictable grooves. Yeah. And it's like, it, well, I don't know that you can learn how to not do that other than just listening to the guys who are great at it. And I think you also have to care in the moment. You know, there's a fear of us wanting to put our stamp on music as artists and just saying, let me just be generic session drummer. Let me get you great time, decent fills, good sounding tracks. And at least I didn't ruin the song um, by putting my stamp on it. But the, the greats out there, you know, there's some, you know, we all, kind of freaked when you brought Aaron Sterling to our attention through his website and everything we all freaked over his drum abilities but when you listen to him play anything that's a little slower tempo and a little lower in dynamics I mean that guy is is weaving in so much tension release texture and and personality into those songs and I I think when I listen to an Aaron Sterling track I don't think the track would be the same without him even if you replaced him with one of the greats because he put so much personality in there without making it about the drums. Yeah, that's true. And I think, uh, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he he's probably thinking, all right, what's the obvious thing to do? And definitely don't do that. <laughs> you know, what can right. I do that's not obvious, but it also isn't distracting? So that think- brings uh, Sput and uh, uh, Larnell to mind on, uh, on a different level, on a fusion level, with what they do with Snarky Puppy. Those When you listen to some of those songs, you could... You know, be if you, as long as you know the time signature, you could play pretty straight through them and be fine. But they create parts that are as important to the music as anything else that's going on. Yeah, so that's true. I think it comes down to idolizing some people. And then, as far as I know, for you guys out there, a lot of you are probably like me. As far as you're not, maybe you're not the most creative individual in the world, and you just want something set in stone to practice. What I would tell you is 
take it easy at first. Obviously, listening is going to be huge, but maybe just pick some crash spots that aren't the norm for you. Maybe the uh of four at the um, inside of the measure that you're playing the fill, or maybe you go past it to the end of one or all the way to the downbeat of two after the measure, in the second measure. Pick a spot to crash on and then work out all the physical ways you can get yourself into that crash. If you're going to crash on the uh of four, you better be comfortable with crashing with your left hand because most of your fills are going to lead you into your left hand on any E or uh. So you want to really figure out, okay, if I had to crash in this spot to release the tension, do I have a setup that would get me to that? And that'll be a good way to start working on this and then start paying attention to it in other drummers. And you'll find that it's it's so much deeper than that. But I just wanted to give you one solid exercise that you can work on. You know, I was thinking um, similarly, because this is what I'm doing with my own playing is, is instead of picking like the crash as your landing point pick your favorite lick that you always okay. play in like two or four beat increments and then how can you how can you extend that phrasing so it goes beyond the four bar cycle the four beat cycle sure like a six stroke roll you can play it as six supplements but if you play it as 16th notes all of a sudden it's right. one and a half beats long and now you've got this cycle that you can you can manipulate you can start it on different parts of the measure and it naturally yeah. resolves in different spots and each one of those is going to have a different bu- amount of tension built into it. That's kind of what I'm yeah, doing and now. It's going I'm to create taking, a melody, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, you're going it, to get like you. one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a one e and a two e. And yeah, a, and every every orchestration of it is going to have a different amount of tension. Like if you put the diddles on the snare drum, that's kind of smooth. But what happens if you put the diddles on a tom or or a p- right. piece or of percussion? Left hand on the hi hat. You yeah. know, the other thing you can do with that, and I don't know if you, I'm sure you've tried this maybe without giving it a ton of attention but one thing that works great is taking something like that and then keeping in it keeping it in its natural subdivision but adding to it so keep it as 16th note triplets or sextuplets but maybe add two singles to the beginning so it's right left and then six stroke roll which gives you a Mm. grouping of eight and feeling those 16th note triplets in eights as they go over the beat line taking your six stroke roll and adding two bass drums to the end of it uh, so it becomes eight notes and then keeping it as 16th note triplets. And and then and then what's great is since it's an eight, you can do maybe two of them as 16th note triplets and then switch into six, go backwards to 16th notes or forwards to 32nd notes where it's starting to fall on the downbeat. But since you did two of them in 16th note triplets, you're actually starting on an and. It's beautiful. <laughs> I'm telling you. It's really cool stuff. But anyway, so yeah, there's so much you can do with this stuff. And I, I think Mike and I would definitely both agree on this, that... You don't really need to learn a lot of brand new material. You need to take the material you currently have and explore it deeper. Yeah, I think just being more deliberate is what it comes down to. And yeah, trying to absolutely. remember that we're making music, and music is about having these periods of tension and periods of relaxation. And Well, know. let's talk about a master of tension and release, Indeed. and that would be Mr. Antonio Sanchez. He's got a new album coming out. It comes out to, well, it'll be out by the time that this podcast is published. The album is called Bad Ombre. Uh, a lot of non-drummers became familiar with Antonio Sanchez when he did the soundtrack for Birdland. Yeah, um, masterpiece. I believe the entire soundtrack is drums only and, and percussion only. Correct? Yeah, I think there, there's there may be two songs that are that are okay. in the movie, but all of the all of the background incidental music is just him improvising on the drum set. Which do is you remember? Like fantastic. the the uproar there was about him not being able to be nominated for a grammy because of that yeah. because it was just drums was it grammys or was it oscars i don't re- was it the grammys oh maybe it was an oscar i don't remember but it was yeah. it was definitely bs in my mind i mean it goes back to the old classic mentality of drums 
can't be considered a melodic instrument or whatever. It felt mm-hmm. really prejudiced to me. Like they were yeah. prejudiced against improvisation as a legitimate compositional type and drumming as being a, a legitimate musical instrument. It really struck me as like BS. It just seemed weird too because it seemed like, hey, we finally broke the mold of what's been going on since you know the the early 1900s. Isn't this amazing? And- <laughs> yeah. And isn't it amazing to bring awareness that drums can create so much emotion? Yeah. In and which they should. They're our first instrument as humanity. How yeah. how is it not considered that? I'm I'm about to go a little saucy here. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so uh, I think that's when everyone kind of got to know Antonio Sanchez on that level. For me, uh, you know, in many ways, this happened over and over and over in my life. But he's another one that was brought to my attention through the Modern Drummer Festival. Oh uh, yeah. And I, I knew the name, but I didn't know the playing at all. And then I think right after that, I can't remember if it was that or right after that, but then he went out with Pat Metheny, and then that's when I uh, saw him play. Yeah, and I think I just, he was had that gig for a little bit when he did the festival, but it, wasn't, okay. it hadn't quite become, you know, everyone wasn't aware of it yet. He right. was still kind of new on that gig. And I believe, uh, maybe Antonio can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that Modern Drummer Festival performance was was spur of the moment because he uh his laptop got erased or something backstage. i remember you saying that i think he put it on the speaker yeah right? i think he put it on the sub and the magnet in the speaker just screwed up his hard drive so he had to just play drums only he was going to play the tracks but i think wow. it was like the it was a, one of those coolest like, thing amazing you know fluke accidents where he I mean, there's no there's no denying the guy can play drums he can play music on the drums by himself with right. no other support i mean that kind of set the tone for what he is now doing now which is writing soundtrack music on drum set which is amazing absolutely and that was also you know we had this gap between horacio showing up in america with on on the modern drummer festival with john patatucci and sh- giving us left foot clave and then out of nowhere, we have Antonio coming out, giving us left foot clave in odd times yeah. and making it extremely musical and not feeling odd and just becoming this this thing where when he would play drums, it you just stop thinking in terms of beats, fills, licks, chops. And it's like, OK, I'm just going to sit back and let this music on this instrument wash over me. And I can tell you this, when that when that DVD came out, that was right at the same time that the whole gospel chops thing had taken over the internet in Mm. early YouTube. And I don't think enough people understood the brilliance of what they were seeing because they kept fast forwarding to like, okay, where's the next chop? Where's the lick? Oh, this guy isn't doing that. So I'm not going to pay attention as much. And I'm just only talking about young drummers that were buying those DVDs at the time. And I remember thinking, okay, I feel like I'm watching Tony Williams or an Elvin Jones where I don't get it yet, but I know that, I know that there's something here that I can't give up on. Yeah, I need to go deeper, and um, it's it's big kid stuff what he does. And it, there's so much. When you said playing everything and being deliberate, I mean, dude, he's the man of that. Yeah, totally. And he and he comes from um, well, he he made himself into a jazz drummer. He started out kind of as more of a fusiony type player, like most of us do. But he wanted, got straight into the New York jazz scene, so his touch had to become so much more delicate and sophisticated so for me he kind of brought all that stuff i was studying with bill stewart and brian blade and and then brought this afro-cuban and this multi-limb independence thing that i hadn't heard in anyone like usually like horacio plays beautiful drums but he's definitely coming from a, a fusion type of touch 
Sure. Like you can hear where he's into Weckle and Vinny, but in using yeah. at the time he's using the six piece kit and all that. But Antonio's like, here, I'm going to take these these sort of bebop instruments and I'm going to do all that stuff at whisper quiet, <laughs> you know, yeah. with a beautiful sound and every cymbal crash is going to be like the most symphonically perfectly placed cymbal crash. Uh, I got to see him live a, a bunch when I first started working here and to see him in person, I think is, is really where it's at. So if anyone gets a chance to go check him out live, because he he can play so intense but so quiet at the same time. If I really felt like I was watching like a a ballet dancer and an Olympic athlete all at the same time, it was just wow. this really great analogy, graceful, beautiful, but physically like extraordinary playing. Yeah, well, he's definitely in the crew when you think of you know our current modern greats. Antonio Sanchez's yep. name is up there at the top and. Um, and I, I don't think that you can hear obvious influences anymore in his playing. He's, his influence is Antonio Sanchez. Yeah. And yeah. that's the dream, right? I mean, we all are hoping to get to that point that somebody doesn't say, oh, you must love Keith Carlock. Like, <laughs> Dude, I'm, in, I'm heavy in a Keith Carlock mode right now, and I can't right. stop trying to sound like him. I hate it when that happens. I mean, I love the way he yeah. plays, and there's probably a, no better person for me to try to sound like than Keith Carlock for the gigs I'm doing. But right. I even, I, on the gig Friday, I felt myself like trying to sound like Keith. I'm like, dang it. Now, I do you ever, do you ever catch yourself? Cause I did this, uh, at the Minel festival, like four years ago, I was in a huge Keith phase and I actually went, I didn't know it, but when I watched the videos back, there's like Keith mannerisms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like the, the big up My strokes. right hands. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my arms like kind of up in the air and I'm going like, ding, ding, check a ding, beg it to ding, but check a ding, check a ding, flag it to ping. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah, but it's hard to. I don't even to. know what's happening. Yeah, he's, he is the deft tones of drummers for me as far as if I listen to it once, my band will copy it. You know what I mean? And, and so Keith oh, yeah. is like that thing where I'm like, ah. One of my favorites, but it's so five feet in front of me tangible. Yeah. You know, when I listen to, honestly, when I listen to Antonio Sanchez, it's about two to three and a half kilometers in front of me <laughs> right, going metric. Right. And then I'm like, okay, well, I don't, I could listen to Antonio all day. I can't reach for that stuff. But when I listen to Keith, I'm just, now I'm not talking about the proficiency, obviously, but just the drumming itself, I'm like, Oh, it's so tangible. Yeah. I'll just do that. Yeah, and yeah. It, yeah, I'm scared. I think he's now. This is not an announcement, but I think he might be doing the camp with us in Ireland next year. So it'd be myself, Mark, Ash, and Keith. Oh, dang! Um, so it'd be like a Gretsch quadfecta. Um, <laughs> that's not a word, but uh, but anyway. So uh, so, and I'm I'm like, well, I just have to miss all of his classes because I'll just. <laughs> I'll just morph into him. Anyways, uh, what I was to get to the original point, when I hear Antonio play, I hear Antonio. And that's the best compliment I could ever give him. Yeah, so his new record his new, is oh, Yeah, the new record is just out now. I think everyone should definitely check it out. It's way more intense and kind of bold than some of the more acoustic jazz stuff he's done in the past. I mean he's yeah. he's essentially improvising over top of computer generated backing tracks that he wrote or or, or put together. So it's a drum record. It's definitely a drum record. It's kind of in the ilk yeah. of Jack DeJohnette's stuff from the 70s, where he's yeah. going for atmospheres, he's going for vibes. It's electronic, it's acoustic, it's got some angry elements. I mean, it's he's making a statement, and I think it's I think it's some of his finest work. I love his acoustic <laughs> jazz playing, but when I hear him do this, I'm like, all right, now 
because I'm I'm a sucker for electronic music that has live instruments on it. I I Absolutely. love that. So bad ombre, um, you could probably get the reference <laughs> from the title of where right. he's going with this. Uh, it's an amazing album. Antonio is one of our true greats for sure, uh, and also one awesome. of the sweetest people on earth. So uh, definitely follow him online if you don't already. There you go. All right, let's get into some candy. Time to talk gear review, and we are checking out the Canopus <clears throat> NV60. Dash M5 5 by 14 maple <laughs> snare drum. Come on with the names. Um, I don't get it. How did I, how did I do on the name of the of the brand? Canopus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Canopus. That's right. Yep. I got it. I feel good about it. Um, yeah. So before we listen to this, I gotta say, I I just don't know how if anybody just needs a standard snare drum, how they just don't have one of their drums. I know. They just sound like drums and the tuning range you went hard on the tuning range on yep. this video yeah i was like wait he did high medium and low why is there still four minutes left of the video to play <laughs> i was like oh he did nine more lows they go lower and lower and lower and it never stops yeah i mean um, they I mean, just yeah yeah japanese precision man i mean it's, it's hard to it's hard to deny how precise they are with this kind of their work and these are these drums they have, I think they're called Neo Vintage Series. So they've got Neo, okay. this is the Neo Vintage 60s. So it's modeled after drums in the 1960s. And there's several different NV60 drums. This is the one that I, they don't they don't come out and say it, but I believe it's modeled after a vintage Gretsch drum. It's got a, a okay. gray interior. It's got a five ply maple shell. Um, the finish was super cool. And the one that I checked out, it's I don't know what they what they call it. It's a black onyx. Uh huh. Kind of looks like a tiger stripe to me. Uh, so it definitely has like a vintage vibe, but like you said, everything they make has weight. It's like if you could take your your most vibey, awesome vintage drum and get rid of all the bad stuff <laughs> and just having them, you know, get rid of the boxiness, right. get rid of the, the out of roundness or the funky tuning range. Just I mean, dude, you have the stock head on this thing. Yeah. Yeah, stock gorgeous. head. There's nothing going on now. Where is this price range? Is this an expensive drum? Their stuff. Portable? Their stuff isn't super cheap, but it's also not like it's not out of but the range. But knowing that this drum, I think, would get a ton of use. I think it'd be it'd be worth it. It's it, this this sure. one's definitely designed for guys who want vintage drums, but modern build that you know will just last forever. Right. No, it's it's incredible. Well, let's give it a listen.
Yeah, so that's one of those drums that when I sent it back, I'm like, yeah, I don't need this. And then when it was gone, I'm like, man, that drum sounded good. <laughs> man, know? I just can't even believe that even in the high tuning, there was n- not an ounce of weird overtones. Yeah, none. I mean, none. nothing. Like, it's so clean. Yeah. Um, and guys, definitely go to um, moderndrummer.com and look up the product review of that. Because like I said, even though you got to just hear a few of the tuning ranges, Mike really went through... Um, everything on this and it goes all the way down to yeah. like sounding like a 14 by eight yeah, with like a towel a floor on tom it. yeah <laughs> yeah it's unbelievable so I, I was really really impressed with this drum and uh, now it makes more sense now that i'm looking at the model number nv60 m5 i'm assuming that's neo vintage 1960s maple five inch snare drum yep exactly there we go <laughs> now i feel like i'm Giving Canopus their just due. Um, but yeah, really, really cool stuff. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, okay, that's kind of what I've always wanted in a snare drum as like, okay, can I just have snare? Yeah, exactly. I don't need it to have a ton of character. I need it to do its job and, and be versatile. So if you're somebody that doesn't want to start a massive snare collection, but you just want to have that solid 14 by 5 maple snare drum, and I don't mean actually solid, but um, it, it, that's... I just don't know what else is out there that's better than that. Yeah. That thing just sounded fantastic and, in every tuning range. Yeah, and all their all their drums are, are beautiful in different ways. And if you're looking for an accessory that I think gets overlooked, that's awesome. The bolt tight tension rod uh, washers that they offer is is essentially two pieces of leather that sandwich in the metal washer. Those mm. things they don't detune. They, they don't come up. So you don't need to put the big old bolt lug locks right. on there and things. These things hold. <laughs> really really well so and they're they're just often overlooked because they're just a tiny little they're just leather washers but yeah so check them out that's awesome all right well let's get into some of your gear questions let's get into some of your listener questions all right we've got this one from mike um this is the the, not you the age-old question um so when i get to uh, he kind of tells a story. So he, essentially, I'm going to summarize. What advice do you have for drummers who aren't really able to play their drums at home because of the noise situation and that having not, living with people who don't want to hear you drumming all the time? Isn't that the age pro, age old problem? And not <laughs> to mention, in my mind personally, what slows the growth of our industry down? Totally, um, totally. I really think the reason why so many people choose guitar over drums is volume. You can practice it by plugging straight into your iPhone. Um, drums are a loud instrument and parents I mean parents have to make a commitment I have beginning students now that I mean they've been taking lessons with me for six months and the parents are still like "Mm, I'm not sure about a drum set yet (laughs) I'm like totally they can't practice to get him a drum set and you're frustrated that your son's not getting any better your daughter's not getting better it's like well they don't have a freaking drum set it's like well we're thinking about an electric stop it that's not a drum set it's an electronic percussive device don't get me started on that one. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think it is tough. Uh, I think that finding a place outside of your house that you can practice yeah. is important. The one thing I love about practice spaces is that because it's not convenient and you have to drive there and you have to enter in your gate code or whatever, when you get there, you get some work done because mm-hmm. you went way out of your way to get to the practice space to book the time maybe you know if you're sharing it with maybe two other bands that's another thing guys you need to know that almost all bands are poor so if you come to them and say hey 
can I park my drum set in the corner of your band practice space and just be here on Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 9 p.m. to 10 p.m.? I'll give you $200 a month. That poor band would be like, yes, yeah, we would love right. for our rent to come down $200. So even though all the places in your area might be booked, it doesn't mean that you couldn't just put up a flyer saying, willing to share a band space, I need to practice this much per week, and I'm willing to pay this. Yeah, um, And most bands would probably take you up on that offer. That was going to be my advice as well. He does He does say he has silent, uh, he has the mesh heads and the low volume cymbals, so he's able to yeah. play a little bit at home, but... I agree. You've got to go somewhere else so you can really hit the drums the way you need yep. to hit them. Um, Agreed. The the woes of being a drummer. He's like, dude, I live in Antarctica. Thanks, guys. The <laughs> podcast sucks. Well, build an igloo and or go out and drum. An igloo. <laughs> nice. Not an igloo. An igloo. <laughs> All right. Getting and the next crazy. one is from Andrew. Uh, so he says, I'm working on triplets and eighth notes and was wondering what your internal clock is doing when you make that change do you try to keep a quarter note pulse consistent in your head when changing subdivisions do you try to keep the eighth note and triplet pulse consistent while changing subdivision Uh, that's essentially the question so i had to think about this when i read the question a little bit earlier and, and i think i tend to keep whatever eighth note pulse is that's what i keep steady the triplets are what become over overlaid on top of that variable yeah yeah. Very rarely do I, I think agree. triplets and play eighth notes. I'm usually thinking either quarters, eighths, and sixteenths, and then the triplets just I know how to fit them over top of that. Uh, but yeah. I don't I don't think I switch my mental pulse from eights to triplets when I'm playing triplets. I think I just keep it at eights. And it wouldn't hurt I mean, the good thing about eights, you know for those of you that may be kind of new to the instrument, you might be a little bit lost to this question. Generally, you're playing a, a basic rock beat that's built out of eighth notes. You've got one and two and three and four, and and then you want to maybe have an eighth note triplet fill. Well, those two things kind of fight each other, but the good thing is they create a very common polyrhythm of a two over three or a three over two. So you can have, if you can just get used to this three over two polyrhythm and get used to one and two and three and uh, four and uh, one and two and three and uh four and uh if you can work on that on a pad and just prepare yourself for that it doesn't mean that you mentally shift to that like mike said i i don't shift to that and start thinking in polyrhythms but it sure makes going into that triplet a little bit easier because i understand how it fight maybe my left foot is still keeping with my heel eighth notes through the whole entire triplet fill because i know how it fits inside those eighth note triplets yeah true hopefully that helps that's not easy to do obviously we're we're skipping you know, hours of practice where we learn triplets. Or nine years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nine years for me. But, but I'm, yeah, I mean, so that it's, it's definitely something where you can do it. And I think just also working on your basic rhythmic scale and maybe working on two beats of each, like one and two and three and uh, four and uh, so that you get used to that transition. I'm always shocked at how my students and my campers go from eighth note triplets to 16th notes and rush so hard on the 16th notes like yeah yeah you just let like the bull out of the gate you know and they, they just and i'm like dude it's one extra note per beat why did you just take off so it, it's working on that stuff with a metronome is the key yeah i had a conducting professor in college who who hammered home the idea that going from 16ths to triplets like our human tendency is to drag the triplets Right. It's, and going from triplets to sixteenths, our tendency is to rush the sixteenths. Yeah. And it's like I said, it's one more note per pulse. It's not going to be a huge difference. Right. You know? 
All right, the next one's from Eric. This is a non-conceptual question. I think we need the <laughs> something, okay. something easy to answer. Uh, my question is about die-cast hoops on snare drums. Do you feel that hitting mm. hard rim shots repeatedly on die-cast hoops could have negative effects on your hands and wrists in the long term compared to triple flange or S-hoops? Mm. Yes, I say yes. I don't know. I have no proof, but I say yes. <laughs> It's a great answer. They just hurt. They hurt. Yeah. And if they hurt, I think, then it's not good. Something's <laughs> wrong, right? Yeah. The other thing, too, that we've never really discussed, but, man, there is an epidemic of rim shots that people can't stop doing them. Yeah. Once they learn how to do it right, that's the only way they know how to hit a snare drum. That's true. And I'm like, uh, bruh. <laughs> That's a sharp sound, man. Like you gotta really, com- you gotta really understand why are you doing that. Like when I'm playing, I, I actually try to avoid that because I want a nice pure sound. And then I think, okay, I want this note to stick out, rim shot. Or wow, my guitar player and bass player are really loud tonight. I need to get my snare on top of this, all rim shots. But uh, it's it has to be a choice. So I one, I would just make sure. Are you hitting rim shots because it's a bad habit? Then try to break that habit and make sure that every rim shot is a choice. Um, and if, if you are at that level, then I agree. I think uh, I also just think I've been taking the die cast hoops off of my snare drums lately. I just feel like they just kind of make it too uh, too focused and yeah. the, the drum doesn't breathe enough. So Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I like them on, on certain drums if I know like... Like, I have a steel drum that just sings forever, and the die cast helps kind of rain There you go. Sure. Uh, but I don't use it all the time, and I'm certainly not hitting. I'm not using that when I'm going to be playing a gig where I'm smashing rim shots for three hours. Right. Uh, I think that would just not not be healthy. And there's other options, too, with, with the different, I mean, the super hoops that are out. They, mm-hmm. you know, if you bend, if you're, if you're playing so hard, you're bending your triple flange hoops. There's, there's other options that will give you more stability that aren't quite die cast. Uh, yeah, and you're right. I mean, that gig I did with Phil Vassar over the weekend, it was like, if you hit a rim shot, it's not going to work. Like, I had to hit right. dead center, thuddy snare hits all night long. Mm-hmm. And I believe that drum actually had a die cast hoop on it, but I knew it wasn't, I wasn't going to be using the rim for the, for the sound. It was just right. to kind of z- zero in the overtones. I, I love a good cross stick on die cast, though. It's, yeah, it's hard to beat. You don't even have to yeah. turn the stick around. You just yeah. go for it, and it, it sounds great. All right, so that is all for our questions. Guys, keep sending those into mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. We appreciate all of those questions, and you can always send audio questions as well. Now it is time to get into our picks of the week. What do you got, buddy? Mine is one that uh, I've been following... Shoot, let me get the actual name of the channel. So I've been following Blair Sinta's YouTube channel for a while, and he's mm. he's just recently become a little bit more uh, regular with posting, uh, you know, like how to get a certain sound kind of videos, and they're really cool. They're really good. So he's got, you know, hip-hop snare sounds and five sounds to get from your 18-inch bass drum and how to get the John Bonham when the levee breaks sound, how to... nice. Six reasons your piccolo snare is not just for the 80s. You know, he's just on smart kind of interesting they're not long seven ten minute long videos so if you just youtube blair Sinta, uh it's b-l-a-i-r-s-i-n-t-a there's some really good content on there and i believe he's also going to be offering uh like a course on another website so i'm sure he'll make an announcement about that very cool and is this the cat that's from la I think we covered yeah. him once. Before. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He was he first came to my attention when he took over in a Lance Morissette's band. I think after that's Gary right. Novak. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, but it, he's done tons of stuff with Melissa Etheridge and Josh Groban and tons of people. He's he's a top wow. guy, top guy in L.A. So it's cool yeah, that he's he's, got these guys are sharing content. Some, yeah, I mean, I think in the past this would be like don't don't share your secrets, but I think these guys know now. It's a different world now. Yeah. So it's good stuff. So it's just Blair Sinta's YouTube channel. There's no other name for it. It's it's just Blair Sinta. There you go. Awesome. I'm going to go down the Metro Road and recommend another candle. And uh, <laughs> so one of the toughest things when I'm trying to make my studio smell like a drumming day spa is how do you find a candle that is androgynous? I don't want yeah, you true. to walk in here and smell cedar and you know and just like man. <laughs> but I also don't want you to come in here. And just smell flowers and be like, what the hell? So finding that smell that's like, I don't know what that is, but it smells good. No matter who you are, not the easiest thing. So the company is called Rewind, R-E-W-I-N-E-D. And these are old used uh, wine bottles that they cut off at Uh the bottom and use. But the candle scents that they have are absolutely amazing. Let me grab this one. I'll tell you what my current scent is because they do have a couple foo-foo scents that you might want to stay away from uh this is the wagner so the wagner so uh, it's very german <laughs> this, is, this is the kid wagner um let's see in this full-bodied white uh i don't even know what that word is <laughs> look for vibrant notes of citrus blended with juicy peach nectar and a hint of soft iris how manly does that sound come on man <laughs> yeah awesome. So check out the Rewind Wagner, uh, and I'm telling you, you light that thing, and everyone will think that your practice space is just awesome. And you know what? I used to always have candles in my practice space because bands smell. Yeah, that's the truth. Especially rock bands. You get going in a small room and just start sweating, and it's just it's just funky primer. So I, I, <laughs> I, I've always loved candles. Uh, these are really high-quality candles. Uh, you can get them at West Elm, or you can just order them online. So Rewind, R-E-W-I-N-E-D. Good stuff. Dig this it. is the Wagner. I'm, All right, everybody, have a fantastic... What? Are you going to get a candle? I'm looking at it. I'm afraid of candles because I'm afraid I'll leave them lit, and then my studio will burn down. Yeah, man. I love that thought. Oh, man. Are you kidding? I get all new colors of drums. That's why I have insurance. I'm like, burn, man. Start from scratch. I have no emotional attachment to anything material. So it's like, uh, like I do want it back. It's, I'm not saying I would give it all away. I just don't care that that one went down in the blaze. I think my mom's house burned down on Mother's Day when I was 18. So um, I lost all my pictures, all oh, wow. my videos of me ever playing drums. So after that moment, I was like, man, I don't really care. And oh. also after that moment, you get a check from the insurance company. Yeah. And they were like, so we, we have a charred drum set here. I'm like, yeah, that's a DW. <laughs> they're like, you sure it says West Percussion? I'm like, yeah, West Percussion <laughs> made by DW. That was $5,000. I'd like a new drum set, please. Now, I'm looking yeah. at that candle website. It's not Wagner like the composer. It's... V I O G N I E R. So Voignier? Yeah, I maybe? guess. I guess. I was looking for a Wagner candle. I'm like, I don't see any Wagner. Okay. Voignier. So, yeah, whatever. V O I G N I E R. Either way, it <laughs> smells manly as hell and it smells slightly feminine. So <laughs> I just like the with juicy peach nectar and a hint of soft iris. Oh, like, man. Dude. That's a love letter to a girl. I love this stuff. (laughs) All right. We need to get out of here before we get in trouble. All right. Everyone have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to our podcast. It means the world to us. And we will see you soon.